So for those of you not aware, I usually kind of bounce around a little bit when it comes to these ruminations. Basically doing what I can, not in linear order. In other words, I don't do, you know, an episode of TNG, an episode of DS9, and then a game, and then repeating every single week. Uh, I usually try to mash out the game ones in a row, then the TNG stuff, and the DS9 stuff. Uh, now, the reason I point that out is because I just finished today, in fact, working on an episode for TNG, which is coming out in like four weeks or something like that, called The Icarus Factor. Now, The Icarus Factor, and I swear this is relevant, so hear me out. The Icarus Factor is what I call not a good episode. In fact, it'll be one of my first ruminations, uh, thanks to suggestions from viewers. And it has an undercurrent connecting thread between its two plot threads of family. A chosen family versus blood family, which is terribly executed, in my opinion. It's just weird going straight from that episode to this one, where we have three plots running, although admittedly one of them is is basically given like four scenes, and one of them is given like three. Obviously the main focus is all about the Odo, Dax, and uh, Ruritan, are they? I wrote his name down here. Yeah, Rurut, uh, Rurigan and his plot. That's the main plot. But there is still an undercurrent theme that actually does connect all these plots, and each one of them is well done. Even though there's basically nothing there about Jake and his little story arc, it was still good. In fact, it calls to mind something that I've, I've spoken of many, many times. It feels like I'm watching characters talking to each other rather than actors over here in DS9. And it's just nice to be able to relax a little bit to that. Um... So, let's talk about the Jake plot first, since I already kind of started that. First of all, I just want to say, as ever, O'Brien is awesome. And I like how naturally and smoothly he just kind of takes that older, like, parental role to Jake. Without even meaning to. It's not like he shoves his way in. He's just automatically, oh, yeah, I understand. I know what you're going through. And immediately relates it to something. I've said this before, I think, but I will definitely say this again. I've always felt that O'Brien is the O'Brien in character in addition to out, that people just automatically have a tendency to relate to him. And that's really shown in this one where Jake's like, oh man, I don't know, you know, I feel, you know, I, I get where you're going with this and I'm not sure if it's going to be the same way with me, but no, you're right, my dad's cool and blah, blah, blah. And I do like how he brings up to, to Cisco. Jake brings up, you know, I don't want to join Starfleet. And he's so hesitant. You know, good credit to Sir Cloffin. He's so hesitant. I, I don't know. I, you know, and, and then Cisco's first reaction is, what? And there's just that little bit of iron there in the way Cisco responds. And you could see Jake almost shrink. But then Cisco immediately just kind of smiles warmly like, okay. No, that's okay. And, <laughs> and I like that. Because that makes sense. Of course Cisco would be disappointed. That is absolutely logical. And makes perfect sense. And so his gut reaction, his first reaction, is going to be one of, you're what? But then... He gets a chance to think about it and realize, he's like, no, no, actually, I'm sorry. You're totally right. You need to figure out what is you. I like that. It's, it's really minor, but it's a nice human dynamic. And it showcases the thematic connection. In case you're wondering, the thematic connection is things not being what they appear to be. It's, it's a really simple connection, but it is there. Everyone just sort of automatically assumes Jake is going to join Starfleet. Now... I could talk about that a little bit, because that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? As I've said before, in-universe, there's a very strong implication 
which I believe is stated outright a few times, that joining Starfleet is a great thing, that it's a desirable thing, that people actively want that, that seek that out. It's like, yes, I want to join Starfleet. Absolutely. I mean, let's be honest, how many of us are in the same boat, right? I know I've talked about this over on Voyager, at the very least. So, you know, of course I want to join Starfleet. My dad's a commander, and I've, I've been in Starfleet since all my life, and my mother, you know, oh, well, okay, yeah, no, I've changed my mind, I don't want to join. You know, the second one is, of course, Kira. Now, I don't actually have much to say about Kira and Beryl. The actors do well together. I just don't get any romantic sparks from them. I know that sounds like a very weird thing to complain about, but it is actually one of my more long-standing complaints about DS9 in general, is that while the, the show is brilliant with its character interactions and the dynamic and chemistry between actors, it's very rare, I feel, any kind of romantic connection between the characters. And there's a lot of romances that are thrown around, well, relatively a large amount of romances that are thrown around that aren't even the romances of the week on DS9. And there's one of these romances that I personally can feel. I bet you know which one it is. The other ones are varying shades of gray, and we haven't really gotten to them yet. This is actually our first, uh, so our second, excuse me. There's the O'Brien Molly one, because of course. Uh, or not Molly, uh, Keiko, sorry. O'Brien Keiko romance, which is duh and obvious and awesome. Uh, and the family relationship with Molly, which is really well done. That's the one I can believe. This is our second one that's been introduced, the one between Kira and Beryl. Now, I do like Beryl's portrayal of someone who is... <sighs> simultaneously open to the idea of romantic connection and hesitant because of his own uncertainty and fear about it. Like, you could just see he is enamored with Kira. And to be blunt, it's understandable why. As we learn, Beryl, in addition to being a pretty good politician, as I pointed out before, is also someone who has, for lack of a better way to put it, served in the trenches, like most surviving Bajorans have at this point. Like, any Bajoran over the age of, like, five at this point in time has probably served some time in the trenches, so to speak, uh, literally or otherwise. So you can tell he sees someone like Kira, who was a survivor and is determined and is competent and is very on top of things, and just, yes, that, right there, that's the kind of thing I want. And, of course, it's not a visitor, so she is attractive. I'm willing to say this. Hesitantly, maybe. She's she's not, actually. I'm kidding. No, I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. You get my point, though. It's It, it makes a large amount of sense that Beryl would gravitate towards her like this. Now, I point that out... <clears throat> Because then the two have a really nice scene. Like, they're like, oh, you want to go play Spring Ball? First of all, I like that scene because it helps to flesh out him a little bit. The idea that he's... Uh, he's a good politician. I'm just going to keep putting it that way. He is the kind of politician who keeps a little bit of tabs on basically everything. There's a great scene where he says, oh, we could talk about other things. And he starts rattling a list off. And it's a minor thing. You can tell he's just trying to look for small talk. And yet everything he mentions is something that is, to some extent or another, fairly important, either culturally or literally in terms of the logistics or the bureaucracy or the politics or the religion of what's going on in Beja right now. He is up to date, is what I'm trying to say. And I like that little inference that he is keeping tabs on so many different things. This is the kind of person who obviously has the drive you know, the, the, the aspirations, in addition to his own religious leaning. 
I also like that he and Kira disagree on the religious topic. There's something about that just made that feel more human and natural to me. Kind of like the Cisco thing earlier. And then they go sp spray, play spring ball, because <laughs> of course. And then Beryl is wonderfully awkward and uncertain when he's finally alone in a private room with the woman he's trying to pursue. There's something so amazingly human about that. I just, it just made me grin. It really did. It's like he's, he's, he's been so blatant about pursuing her, so obvious, so overt about it. And then he finally is there in a private situation with her, and he's just like, Oh, God. <laughs> right, what do I do? What do I do? How do I? Uh, yeah, I'll just we'll go there, and maybe we'll... Uh, and, and he clearly wants this, but he's still just like, uh, I love it, I love it. And then there's a scene that just makes me raise an eyebrow. The two basically exposit at each other while making out. Now, I don't know about you guys, um, I have, in fact, I, I know this is going to come across as a massive shock, but I have made out with a girl in the past. And I'm not bringing that up for any reason other than point out that ever since I started actually, you know, having romantic entanglements in real life, Hollywood presentation of kissing has just gotten funnier the longer I, you know, the, the further on I get. Like, there's this little trick you'll see, and I'm sure you'll, you either have already noticed or will start to notice, where people will kiss, and what they're actually kissing is basically right here. Like, their, their, cheek, their, their cheeks are touching, but they're basically kissing, like, right next to each other's lips without actually kissing. And if, especially if they do, like, the angled thing like this, so you can't really tell unless you're paying attention. But the way the two are just... As they're expositing at each other, it just, I burst out laughing. I couldn't resist. It was just like, oh, come on, really? Um, but I, I, the, the thing that kept going through my mind is, God, did they have to do multiple takes of this scene? Because that'd just be awful. <laughs> like, can you imagine being an actor or an actress, having to be like, having to remember your lines while you're like, ah, ah. anyways. Um, and then, of course, there's the bit where she goes and confronts Quark. Now, Obviously, Quark kind of, you know, did the obvious play here. This is pure headcanon, and I have no uh, support for this whatsoever. I just like to think that Quark actually had like five or six things going on while Oda was gone. And then he had the big obvious thing, which is going to be the big score. You know, that was going to bring in the most money. And then that's the one that Kira noticed. And so I was like, oh, right, right. I'm glad you enjoyed the distraction, you know. That's just something I like to think. But anyways... Let's talk about the main plot of the game. Let's, or excuse me, episode. Let's talk about the Odo stuff. So, in the intro, Odo is talking with Dax. Uh, Odo's, of course, being very anti-romantic. You can see why I like him as a character. And Dax is being very gossipy. She brings up an interesting point, and I find myself wondering, because Odo is very perceptive. This has been a recurring character trait for his, and he's demonstrated it rather than just saying it many times so far. In fact, he demonstrates it in this episode. He actually has, he says several things about people and perceives correctly their feelings and emotions and thoughts about things because he's a very perceptive person. And yet he apparently, we gotta say this because we're not sure, apparently is not aware of people, women, uh, being infatuated with him. I like to think that that is true and makes perfect sense because I just like to think that Odo has this sort of mental block when it comes to the romantic arts and just isn't even thinking in that direction either because of the eventual things already you know slowly developing 
or just because it's Odo. The idea of, I don't even want to deal with that, right? I don't even want to think about that. Nope. I mean, we all have our blind spots, right? So, I also absolutely love the way that... So, they're down there, and there's Collius, right? And can I just say, Collius was amazing. Uh, Collius was the... Not the elder gentleman, but the the, the, the security guard, the, the guardian, the peacekeeper. Um, he was amazing. He was exactly what he needed to be for this episode, and he just nailed his portrayal and his part. I loved it. Uh, Collius also has this thing where he's like, oh, you two, why don't you prove, oh my gosh, I don't know, maybe you're just lying, maybe you're fixing your logs. And then Odo's like, okay, we can literally prove that we are only here because we choose to be. One to beam up. And he's like, oh my god. And his freakout makes sense for two reasons. One, the obvious one. But two, because he has a disappearing person's case on his hands. But I really do love that way of demonstrating, not only segueing into the actual mystery, but that way of demonstrating compliance. I am not your enemy, because you are not holding me against my will. I am here of my own choosing. You know, it's, it's the old saying, uh, anything said at gunpoint is suspect. Uh, that is actually a legal thing as well, if you're being held at gunpoint. Uh, you can... You can say, you can say, things you say th theoretically cannot be used against you in a court of law because you were being held at gunpoint. So if you just remove the gun, it's like, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm reminded of Harry Potter 3, actually. It's like, all right, here, you have your wands. We have no power over you. Please listen to us, right? Come on. I love that way of convincing someone. I also notice that the moment Kalia start mentions the case, Odo just picks up on it immediately, and just you can just see there's like a switch in the back of his mind, like detective mode, activated, uh, ready, ready to comply, you know. <laughs> I really love how Odo immediately starts sniffing around this case, and without hesitation starts saying, we need to, you know, he doesn't even say it. There's no need for the, we need to help these people. There's no, you know, prime directive, whatever. There's just, oh, these people are in trouble. Well, maybe we can help with that. And it just flows so naturally. And of course, as weird as this may sound, Odo and Dex, it makes perfect sense to me that both of them would do that. I don't think either of them gives a flip about the Prime Directive, and I think both of them are the kind of people who would automatically and without hesitation help someone. You know, it just feels like my general inclination. Anyways, um, there's also a nice little touch. This episode has several little touches, like I mentioned. Dax asks permission to scan before she does so. Now, I point that out because she just has her tricorder. She could have just pulled it out and started beeping away. But she actually bothers to ask permission for it first. It's a very minor touch, but it shows a degree of respect and diplomacy that usually you don't actually see in Star Trek. Just a nice little tidbit there. So, Odo and Taya is kind of an awesome dynamic. The thing I was most reminded of was Doc Brown and Marty over in Back to the Future. Because... It is one of those things that kids tend to find something fascinating about the older eccentric, eccentric, especially the one that other people say to stay away from, right? Now, granted, nowadays, the world has become more horrible and we need to be more hesitant about that sort of thing. But in a better place where that kind of crap doesn't exist, like Star Trek, it makes sense that the kid would find this weirdo, who is an older person, to be interesting and to want to learn more about them. And thus we see Taya very slowly opens up to Odo throughout the course of the episode until it gets to the point where she actually embraces him in a hug 
and is like, you know, thank you for helping me. Thank you for finding my mother. And then Odo, of course, has grown to care about her in return, and finally turns into the top at the end. Nice little touch, and good special effect. I also pointed out, though, because it's not like, and this is important, the episode opens with Odo not caring about gossip. Because to Odo, that's all just a lot of meaningless meandering. Odo doesn't care about that. But he does care about people. Remember, he, without hesitation, without even bringing it up, started helping these people. Because of course he did. Because Odo really does care about people. You know, the Odo as of now, the Odo from then, the Odo who we first were introduced to back in Emissary, the Odo from during the time of the occupation, probably not. But this Odo? No. This is the kind of Odo who really does give a damn. He likes to portray that he doesn't, but it's very obvious he does. And I like the dynamic between the two. They got a great actress for the kid, too, which is usually a huge sticking point and a problem, especially in Star Trek. So, um, I also like... <laughs> I'm sorry, I have a little note here about Coleus. There's this bit where the cloak vanishes. Says, that was my favorite cloak. He just, he says it so perfectly. God, I just want to uh, give him more money or a praise or something, because he nailed his role. Um, But there's this bit where uh, they're not sure what to do. You know, they have been convinced that they are holograms. I love the way he says it, too. And they all just kind of come to terms with that a little bit too quickly, I'll admit. There's literally this, you should be looking for a wife instead of listening to this nonsense. And then fast forward like two minutes, and then, okay, we all agree to be shut off because we're all holograms. It's a little bit too compliant, but whatever. I'm willing to gloss it over because we don't need excess drama. In fact, if anything, I'm a little upset that that earlier line was put into the episode at all. That would be my complaint there. Just eject that. Have them freaking out a little bit, sure. But don't have them be like, this is nonsense, even though they have already had demonstrable proof. But I like it because there's this natural buildup to the mystery. We land on this planet. There's some kind of weird energy thing with the Omicron particles. There's this weird... Uh, presence that's pre preventing our scanners from working properly. No people are missing. No one's gone beyond the valley ever. And then there's this big buildup and oh my gosh, they're holograms. And I love it because it's the, it's the fake out twist. In fact, it's kind of an obvious twist in hindsight, but that's the point. What I mean by a fake out twist is it's when you do a reveal or a twist or whatever with the intention of putting the audience off their guard. Because generally, not speaking to everyone, but generally when an audience has been had something revealed to them, they stop looking for further reveals, for further twists. That's the twist. Oh, okay. We're cool. And then you hit them relatively soon after there with another reveal, which is the actual reveal, in this case being the fact that Rurigan was a flesh-and-blood person. That was well done. And I'll admit, the first time I saw this episode upon rewatch, which... It was years after this episode came out. We still haven't reached the point where I rejoined the show, by the way, uh, when it was actually coming live. But anyways, uh, you know, so uh, Rurigan being, you know, a flesh-and-blood person, that was a good reveal. And I will admit that caught me. And then he starts talking about this whole setup. Uh, I wrote down his name, Kenneth Toby. He's the guy who plays Rurigan. He really does a very good job with his role. You can tell this is someone who is bitter and old and tired. And throughout most of the episode, he portrays someone who, in addition to all that, is angry. Because he knows what's going on. He built this system. He knows it's slowly dying. And he can't really see a good answer to this. So he just watches his program slowly collapse. And he anticipates either dying here or 
once you know the crew get involved, okay, fine, take me back home and I'll die there. It is that sort of cynicism and bitterness that taints him. But that's just the surface. It's like a, uh, a crust that has been built up over the actual core of how he feels. He has grown to call this place home. He has grown to care, just like Odo does. There's a great line, she's real to you. And the way, again, the way Kenneth Toby says it, of course she's real to me, because I love her. Why would you care if a hologram cries? He does seem to flip a little bit too fast, but in hindsight, it does it fits seamlessly with the way the character has been portrayed so far, in my opinion. This is someone who has been slowly building up the courage to say goodbye to what is effectively his perfect life, even if it's retirement at this point, even if he knows he's going to slowly die and this will be the end of it. He has been working his way up to this point, and he still doesn't want that. Odo smashes him in the face as hard and as blunt as possible to more or less literally emotionally shock his system, to make him acknowledge that he does actually care about these holograms. And I like that. And then when they do convince him, I love his last request, please don't tell them that I am not a hologram. I just want it to be the same as it was, please. I really wish we'd followed through on this place. I actually tried to look up the name of the planet and I couldn't find a listing for it. Um, I really hope this place shows up in STO. That would be awesome. Because STO is where Star Trek stories go to be concluded or to continue on, right? I really enjoyed this episode and I would be lying if I said it didn't hit me in the feels. Some really, really good stuff. Um, so it's a nice breather from the Icarus Factor. I will be seeing you guys next week with, I don't know what... <laughs>